Today on the podcast, we're talking about learning, and I'm joined by my fellow learning enthusiast and host of Steph's Business Bookshelf, Steph Clark. If you were going to teach a class on learning, what would you cover? And if you want to embed a culture of learning in your organization, what should you do? Today, I'm giving Steph a call to chat all about it. Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff! Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name's Shane Hatton. I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you. And really the premise is quite simple. I just want to be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Joining me on the phone is Steph Clark. She's a facilitator, designer, and podcaster. She helps teams work better together as a facilitator. She works with businesses to bring their ideas and insights to life visually as a designer. And she shares the big ideas from the best nonfiction books through her podcast, Steph's Business Bookshelf. I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on the podcast. Steph, welcome. Thanks, Shane. Great to be here. It's so interesting to see you on the other side of a microphone, not being the the person who's delivering the podcast in this one. So how are you feeling being the interviewee on a podcast? Good. I've done quite a few. I actually recorded another one yesterday with someone else. So I feel like we're in the in interviewee mode at the moment, which is good. That's cool. You have got, you've got a great podcast, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, and so it's really nice to be able to have you on the interviewee side of this conversation. Hey, before we kick off, let's jump in with some fast facts, help people to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so three quick ones for you. Where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? I was born in Southampton in the UK, which is famously where the Titanic sailed from, also the Mayflower, if you want to go further back in in history. Yeah, very nautical-themed city. And the first job I had, I mean, I worked for my dad in the school holidays and things like that, doing some paperwork and filing and invoicing and all of those kinds of good things. And then along the, around the same time, so I can't remember which one was actually first, I used to teach or help teach tennis or short tennis to mini tennis to kids because I grew up playing tennis. And so I helped my tennis coach with the, the classes for kids that he used to used Are you to still run. playing tennis? No, there's a very long and sad story about various injuries, which means is, uh, which is the reason why I don't play tennis in, anymore, including a back fracture that was misdiagnosed and not picked up for six years. So. Wow, that sounds like the plot line of every kind of sporting movie. There's always like the moment you're about to turn pro, there's an injury that kicks in. We can pretend that was the case, but there was um, <laughs> <laughs> pro is definitely not not a word that I would uh, associate with my tennis career. So. <laughs> pro is not a a, uh, a word that I would associate with any of my sporting abilities. So mm. the fact that you can at least play, I'm 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 in, in admiration of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So tell us a bit about what you do now. 
I do many things. Uh, some people would describe me as a constant state of existential crisis about my my jobs and <laughs> career, which we might get into as we get through this conversation. But the, the three things I do at the moment is I help teams work better together or help teams be better teams is sometimes how I put it. So I do that mostly through facilitation and team coaching, mainly helping teams who maybe are new to working together, get off on the right foot and really set their ways of working, their purpose, their potential and really helping them to have the conversations they need to, or sometimes teams who are feeling a bit challenged at the moment for whatever reason, internally, externally, whatever that happens to be, and helping them, again, have those conversations that they need to, invite the elephants into the room and facilitate that process and conversation with them and for them. Yeah, great. And then the the other two things I do is I also do graphic design. So that's a newer string to my bow on a, on a more formal way. So I'm helping some clients at the moment with some mostly a bit of branding, but a bit of kind of content development as well, more on the almost editorial side of that, which is good. And I'm experimenting myself with a bit of a book cover project that I'm working on at the moment as well. So oh, that's fun. fun. I've and seen some of your design work that you've been putting online and watching you go through the process of, of learning about that. So I'm mm. keen to explore that a little bit later on. Yeah, awesome. And then the third thing, as you mentioned earlier, is my podcast, Steph's Business Bookshelf, which is now into about episode 120, I think, is is the next one. So it's been running for a couple of years. And each week I share the three best big ideas from some of the best nonfiction books and business books out there, kind of covering a bit of a broad spectrum of everything from psychology, marketing, leadership, kind of everything in between, and then biographies, autobiographies and things as well. So those are commutable distance. They're usually about 15 minutes long and just share the, the big ideas that so helps people decide whether to carry on reading the book or whether to read the book, whether to carry on reading the book or whether sometimes to abandon the book, which I've found people have said to me, oh, that was really good because it meant I actually didn't need to invest the rest of the three or four hours <laughs> into reading that because you just gave me what I was, the bits I was missing. Well, you know, what's funny is I actually, I think I connected with you because I saw somebody post uh, some of your reviews on some of the business books uh, that you'd read. And I, I actually, one of the things I loved about what you do is that you do it in such a succinct way in being able to talk about, okay, and it's a very reliable review. And I don't say that because, you know, I want to criticize in any way, but there's a lot of reviews out there, which are just... Uh, you can tell that they're written by people who are just reviewing for the sake of review. And yours is a very honest mm-hmm. review and it's a very helpful review. Um, so what got you into that? Why did you go down that route of starting a you know a podcast talking about books? It's a very good question. And it's a typical scratch your own itch kind of problem <laughs> or origin story. So I was reading all these books. So probably what are we now? So probably four or so years ago, moved into a new role and a couple of people I was, or one partner in particular that I was working with and this in a professional services environment, asked me if I'd read these couple of books and I hadn't and I felt a bit embarrassed. I was like, oh, I need to resolve the situation. So being me, I went and then read all the books and um, was then reading sort of 30 or so books a year. And people with them, you know, particularly people I worked with, knew that. And they'd say to me, Seth, can you recommend a book on this? Or have you read this book? Was it good, etc." And I found after a certain period, after a certain number of books read, you were like, oh, did, was this story in this book or was it in that book? So they were kind of some of them blending together a little bit, as you, as you know. So I really wanted a way of cataloging and being able to share with other people the best bits of the books I was reading or which book to read or all this kind of stuff. So for me, it was a way of cataloging my own reading and my thoughts about those books and what was good and what I liked, etc. But also then being able to share that with others. So unlike probably the majority of people who would maybe just write them down or start a blog, maybe something like that, I thought, no, I will... (laughs) 
commit to myself to a weekly podcast for the rest of my life. So, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend this because it's, uh, it's actually quite a bit of work, but it has been really great. I've started so many different conversations, met so many different people that I wouldn't have done and wouldn't have had exposure to without the podcast. So I no regrets, as they say. Yeah. I mean, there are so many people that you have conversations with on a regular basis and they go, they'll ask the typical question, which is what are you reading right now? And Mm. I feel like if someone was to ask you that question, they would not only just get a, oh, I like this book. They would get a very thorough response from you. Um, And so I'm interested to know where, where did this journey kind of start with? Have you always been a reader? Are you, is it something you kind of got into later? Um, Where did this all start for you? kind of a born again reader. So I was a big bookworm as a child. My sister still laughs at the fact that my favorite book growing up was a kid's encyclopedia. So she's always like Steph the Nerd kind of thing. So that was that was always funny that I grew up, you know, reading all the Enid Blyton books and everything else that we read at, at that kind of age. And some of those are a bit problematic now, but it's what I grew up reading and really read very yeah, read very heavily as a as a child, and then as most things, you know, when you're a teenager, different interests and playing a bit more sport and doing other things, doing music and stuff like that. So reading kind of became more of a, a binge reading habit when I was on holiday, and I would smash through trashy crime novels and things like that. I was never one for the kind of beachside romance novel or anything like that. It was always some grisly tr- crime related thing or legal drama or you know, the John Grishams and all of those kind of cliche ones. I mean, my dad would often have a bit of a competition on holiday. We'd take a stack of books with us and whoever could get them through them quickest would would you know, be the moral winner. And then it was probably around that kind of time, actually. So I, in the UK, I, for a couple of years, commuted to London and was doing a two and a half hour commute each way each day for about 18 months or about three or four times a week for 18 months so I read quite a few books then but it wasn't particularly intentional and it was more just something to kill five hours a day of commuting Mm. so then later on as I moved to Australia and got into these uh you know kind of my career progressed into more senior roles I started to hear about more books and was was picking them up and being recommended them and then really just kind of took off from there yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I would describe myself is I would say that I'm not a reader. Um, I didn't grow up reading. I never was really interested in it. And yet um, there was still this kind of desire to want to be a reader. I, I kind of wanted to be, I wanted what you had and I, I wanted to be in that space, but I would find that I would be what you just described as the binge reader. I would go on holidays and I would take a giant bag of books and it would always be like excess luggage on the plane. Cause I'm like, I'm going to read 10 books knowing that I've not read a book in the entire year in the lead up to this holiday as though now all of a sudden I'm going to become this incredible reader while I'm on holidays. What I found out later in life and what took me some time to, to figure out is that I wasn't a reader, but I was a learner. And I think what that mm. desire to want to read books was actually getting out of me was this desire to learn and this craving to learn. So what I find is when I pick up a book and I feel like I'm learning, it's so easy for me to read. But when I feel like it's stuck and I can't, I don't feel like I'm learning or getting something out of it, it's really hard to finish that book. So I've got lots of incomplete books sitting on my bookshelf. Um, and I get the sense from our conversation that you're, you may be a reader, you may not be, whatever that is, but I definitely can see that you're a big learner. So where do you feel like that started for you, this desire to want to learn? Is it something you've always had? Is it something that came to you? Or yeah, what does that look like for you? It's a really good question. And also, where do we where do we start the idea of learning? Because I think that one of the things, and certainly in my L&D career in a more corporate environment, what it taught me is that what it showed on a almost daily basis is that people aren't taught to learn in whatever formal schooling and education they've been through on the most part. 
So, and I, and I spoke, you know, I've spoken to people who have done PhDs and they say, really, it's only when they've done, it's when they've got to the PhD level that you really learn how to learn because you mm. have to, to, if you're going to do, because it's obviously incredibly research-based. So that is quite interesting in itself. But if I just go through more of the education stuff, so I love school. I, I just, I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, school, how brilliant was school? And I know that's not the case for everyone, but for me, school was great. I love learning. There was stuff I was less interested in naturally, but I was a good learner. I was quite a good studier. I was fairly good at exams, which I know is in no relation or has no relation to learning or ability to learn. But I just love the whole process and the, the the experience. And then probably as I as my as I then started my career, actually I think even that, even the fact, so I chose not to go to university because I don't really like doing what other people, everyone else is doing. <laughs> I think the, uh, that's um, usually in my mind, it's a terrible idea doing what everyone else is doing. But I... It's the so I creative straight. I can hear coming out. <laughs> uh, I think so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the yeah conventional wisdom is just nonsense. So um, anyway, so I joined EY when I was 18. And for the, it was almost for that reason. You know, whilst it's probably more in hindsight, I realised that. But for me, the idea of going to university and learning something for three or four years that was very classroom based certainly at that time sort of 15 or so years ago a bit more it just wasn't appealing whereas going in and and applying learning was much more appealing and actually doing it for real because Mm. and when I think now about my learning style and and having more recently studied in the the graphic design qualification what I know and has been reminded to me many times in the last six months or so has been I'm rubbish at practice. I'm great at learning, rubbish at practice. So for me, going to university and learning how to be an accountant just felt a bit vacant. Whereas going to an accounting firm and learning how to be an accountant whilst doing accounting, much more appealing because it's that active action learning, whatever you want to to Mm. call it. You know what's fascinating to me? So I would I would say someone asked me this question, and which which is why I'm glad you touched on this. Someone asked me recently, what's the number one skill that you would um, teach people if you could just teach a person to have one skill? And my response to that was, I would teach people how to learn. And I would say it's it's genuinely this process that I, I feel like has come very naturally to me over my life. And I would say it's probably because I'm a naturally curious kind of person. So I remember working at a university. Um, I was recruited back to the same university I graduated from to work for their division of marketing. And um, in that time, there was uh, when I was working for marketing, there was a process. And it basically took four weeks to go from the campus that we were at to our main campus up north. They would fill out the kind of process and send back the the finalized artwork to us when we wanted to get something designed. So I was going to a recruitment fair, like a student recruitment expo, and I wanted a name tag. That's all I wanted was a name tag. And it took four weeks for it to get from our campus to our division of marketing, our head office, to be designed and sent back to us. Now, as a university, um, we had access to all the software that the university had access to on our computer. And I noticed Photoshop was sitting on there. And so I thought to myself, you know what? It doesn't take a lot to be able to try to figure out how to just do that. I could make that happen, which every marketing person would probably be cringing in the back of their mind right now. But I learned how to use Photoshop as a result of that. And it was this curiosity to go, if there's a problem, how could I learn how to overcome that problem rather than relying on somebody else to help solve that? And that's kind of what I'm hearing in this conversation. Like this skill set of being able to learn something when you don't know something is such a valuable skill set. Would you agree? Absolutely. And when I think about more recently, my desire to do the the graphic design qualification and, and learning experience on that it's you know it's the qualification was the outcome rather than necessarily the or the piece of paper rather than the actual output of the program but 
that came from, again, scratching my own itch and thinking, it really frustrates me that I cannot make things look as good as I want them to and as good as I know that they can do and as no, and as good as I think I could make them with the right foundations and knowledge and you know, a bit of technical skill as well. So all of that comes from exactly that, that point of that frustration of mm. not knowing how to do that. Now, there's stuff I don't know how it works and I'm perfectly okay with that. I'm yeah. about to go and become a plumber or something like that. Sorry, Dad, but the the yeah, so there's some stuff you you have that awareness. You're like, I'm okay. There are many other people who I can pay good money to to fix those problems for me. But there's some stuff that you almost can't get out of your system that you want to be able to do. Whether it's something you're know, cooking, something whether it's playing an instrument, speaking a language, whatever it happens to be. And they're generally the more generally, say for something for me anyway, the more practical, most vocational type skills rather mm. than necessarily. I don't know something more technical yeah yeah that makes sense so one of the things I would say like if we if you and I kind of two learners in the room together um if we were to kind of teach a class and we were teaching people to learn later in life like what would you say are some of the big qualities that we would be looking to impart for the people who are maybe either listening to this and going like I want to become more of a learner what do you think are some of the big qualities we need the word you used earlier about curiosity, I think that's mm. the that's really the biggest one. And sometimes it's even, it's, and as I've been telling myself or going through the process from a design perspective, it's almost learning to see or re- learning how to see differently. Mm. And for for someone to say, if it was someone to say, oh, okay, I want to be a learner, how do I start? It would almost be looking around at the people who you maybe really admire or are doing a great job in your you know, maybe your company, your field, your industry, something or something completely adjacent, whatever it happens to be, and just thinking, what is it that makes them great? So I think it's having that that analytical, almost like analytical curiosity. There's kind of the creative curiosity of, hmm, that's interesting, I'll ask a follow-up question, but also the analytical curiosity to say, let's let's reverse engineer this to an extent so if i see something good or if i see something interesting or if i see something i don't understand that i'm fascinated by what is it that the almost the foundation principles of that thing and how could i break that down and then learn those things oh i love those distinctions between a creative curiosity and an analytical curiosity um i was watching a video recently of a guy who was talking about upcycling some of his old um technology and he said, there's two ways that you can do this. You could either obviously go through the process of um, creating new pieces of you know, machinery technology out of it. He said his way of upcycling is um, by creating knowledge out of some of those devices. So when something breaks, what he does is he pulls the whole thing apart and he learns how it's built and how it's put together. He said, because that's one way rather than just discarding something, it actually adds value by creating knowledge, which I thought was that kind of analytical curiosity coming into to play in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... There's, I think there's schools and or certainly organisations who do that kind of stuff with schools for that reason. They're like, actually, let's do, you know, the, the repurposing of this piece of equipment, this old bit of kit, or whatever, is is education rather than necessarily the skip, yeah. <laughs> which is is good. And I don't know, I don't know how much of that is nature versus nurture. I think that's always an interesting conversation for most habits and behaviours and mindsets and things. And my granddad's very much the kind of person, or was very much the kind of person who would have everything in bits all over the garage and all over the shed and we spent quite a bit of time hanging out with him in the shed and in the garage over summer holidays and things like that and watching him recreate things and and it was almost that idea of nothing goes to waste and I think that's such an important mindset Mm. as well with as a learner that whatever you learn it's not wasted it's even if you don't apply it either immediately or never even that potentially that is going to be a really great metaphor for something in years to come and will help someone else help you unlock 
some learning for someone else. Funny enough, so when my granddad died uh, a couple of years ago, my mum and my aunt had to go and clear out his his flat. And in there, there was all these just bits and pieces of all these half undone and you know, bits of kit and equipment and stuff like that. Anyway, there was a kettle and inside the kettle, there was this note and it said, element broke you know element hyphen broken spout hyphen broken power cord hyphen broken there's all these things that were broken with it and then it then underneath it just said everything else works fine and it was just like, <laughs> <was a> like <laughs> which was just like everything about that is depicts exactly who my granddad was <laughs> um i've been reflecting a little bit like again we, we look at analytical curiosity creative curiosity being able to see things and reverse engineer them uh, be able to find things that are broken um there's obviously the concept of anti-fragile when it comes to learning is like, what are the things when they get broken, they become stronger. And learning is obviously one of those things that when you recognize there's something you don't know, you can find a way to, to, to get better as a result of that. So it's this kind of anti-fragile concept. But um, one of the things I think um, has helped me as a learner is how to deal with resistance. It's like, how do you deal when you come up with an obstacle or a challenge and not just default to getting somebody else to solve the problem? What's what's that look like for you? Is that been something that relates for you? Yeah, I... You know, it comes back to this idea of grit sometimes, doesn't it? And mm. how much you're interested and, and and also, I suppose, the the what's at stake? Is it something that just needs fixing quickly because that something's going to break or collapse or the whatever it is is going to happen if that's the case, in which case you might need to ask for help pretty speedily and maybe throw yeah. some money at that problem or whatever it happens to be versus being able to just, again, kind of reverse engineering and go, well, what, what are the steps? And my partner is a data scientist and writes a lot of code and, and all those sort of things. And for him, it's always interesting kind of hearing his problem solving because it's always going back to find out Right, where's the error in the code that's driving this problem downstream, or uh, and so it's going back upstream to find out well what's what's gone wrong. So I think it's it's applying that same methodical thinking in many cases to to the problem solving and the you know, finding the broken thing as well, and just going back through through your intentional process and going right, hang on, where did this go off course, and whether that's as obvious as yeah being able to find the broken line of code or being able to find out where your layers in Photoshop have got muddled up or in something's in the wrong order or something's been hidden or not transparent or whatever. Oh, see, there's something in there around failure, I reckon, as well. Um, like part of the whole learning process is how we handle the failure within this. So I, you know, I talked about, I, I did graphic design at uni um, when I was working for the university. And when I started, I, I ran my first very, um, my very first business when I was in Queensland, it was like a marketing consulting business. I had no idea what I was doing in hindsight, but I was having a good crack at it. And one of the things I learned when you start a business is that you can either pay someone to do something for you, but if you have no money, how do you pay someone? So I, I taught myself how to build a website by sitting next to a website developer and basically just asking him for help every time I would do it. But the way that I learned is I would, I would put all the code in and then I'd click preview and I would see what's broken. Mm. And whatever's mm. broken, I would go back and go, all right, let's start again and try and fix it. And it was this process of dealing with what's broken, what's failed, how do I re revert and fix that? So do you think handling failure is a big part of the learning process? Oh, it has to be because you're not learning, I don't think, if you're not failing, because otherwise you probably knew it already or you've got some weird innate talent in coding <laughs> or, you know, using that same example. Like that's, that's almost strange if you get it right the first time. Especially if you're just, especially if you're doing something as complex as building a website, or what can be as complex as building a website, rather than just you know, maybe just doing a couple of 
single lines of things or actions mm. or whatever. So I think, yeah, there's absolutely that. And it also makes me think, so just coming back to my partner again, so in the way, the different ways of learning. So even for the fact that when I was last year deciding whether to do this graphic design, I went to Shillington and did the the immersive 12-week program. For him, when I said about this to him, he was like, oh, surely all that stuff's available online. You can just teach yourself. And whilst I love teaching myself and finding a good tutorial on something, it has to it's normally something a bit more almost transactional. So it's how to do this specific thing. So in Photoshop, for example, how to do this one particular action or this one particular effect or whatever. Very happy to watch a YouTube video, what, mm. follow a tutorial, whatever. But when it's the foundations and the fundamentals, like, yes, you could spend... I don't know, a year or whatever, doing that and curating that yourself. And I think that the, coming back to your question earlier of what are the skills of learning, curation is 100% one of them, like curating your own learning curriculum or experience mm. is such an important skill. So yes, that's that's all very well and good. But for me, it's usually around, well, how am I going to get feedback? And to, to be getting feedback, you need to probably be failing or not doing so well and having those those feedback loops through something, especially something as subjective as design. But again, maybe that's slightly different for something like coding, where you very quickly, you know, it's black and white, it's broken or it's not. Now, could it be more efficient and all those things? Yes, probably. But you get very immediate feedback from the actual thing itself about whether it's right or wrong. Mm. Some of these conversations we're having here are so helpful, again, because we're, we're almost thinking like if we were to teach a class on how to learn, what are some mm. of the things that we would be teaching? We've talked about analytical versus creative curiosity. We've talked about how to deal with failure and bounce back from failure, how to overcome resistance in the process of that. And I love that last one there around curation of like, what, how do you actually curate opportunities for learn? One of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is the di distinctions between principles and practices. And uh, this idea of going, how do we how do we learn principles that we can then outwork practices? So like the design is an example. We go, well, if I wanted to learn the practice of an effect, I would go to the YouTube video. But actually but sitting beneath that practice is a principle around design that if I don't get that, I can know all the technical skills in the world, but I can't actually outwork it in a way that's, you know, elegant or clean or whatever the principle is that sits below that. Is that, yeah, kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, just following that design idea or concept, the the thing that's on my mind as I you know, build that that part of my skill set and career is this this idea of Canva. And Canva, I'm a big fan of. It's a you know incredible for Australian business. Love what they've done, and I love that it is has democ democratized design. However, the the danger of something like Canva is that because a lot of people, and you know, not everyone does need to know these things. That's absolutely this is not uh, you know, not be being saying otherwise. But because people don't know why the templates, et cetera, look good, well, number one, you've got the problem that everyone's templates look the same. So number one, that's one issue. Yeah. But secondly, the, the main thing is because people don't know why those templates look good and why they are appealing and why they are fitting for you know what it is you're trying to do, you then get people moving things around or whatever, and suddenly that template that's been nicely curated and put together and designed then looks off or weird or kind of ugly in some cases because we, you don't have that the underlying knowledge. So whilst yeah, it's just a good example, I think, or kind of meta example of that difference between practice and principles. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because I think one of the things that um, where this is coming to is that once you once you can draw out the principles, we can learn from the principles rather than just trying to replicate mm. a behavior or a pattern. Because I would say that for my learning experience, when I'm, when I'm, I'm going through the process of learning, I'm not trying to just replicate the activity or the behavior. What I want to do is understand why that behavior is important or why that behavior produces the outcome. So for example, we, I do a lot of workshops with public speaking. People will go, oh, that was such a great presentation. 
And so my question is why? And they go, well, mm. if I just do exactly what they did, then I'll achieve and get what exactly what they got. I'm like, no, 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 there's, there's principles in there that if you can learn the principles, it might not be the same practice, but you'll achieve the same kind of outcome. And this is part of the learning process is asking why, not just how, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to this idea of once you know the rules, then you can break them, which then comes into the idea of things like authentic and of love-hate relationship with the word authenticity, but it comes down to that authenticity, finding your own style, finding the principles and applying them in a way that is unique to you rather than just yeah, replicating something you've already seen or copying a design from someone else or using the same technique in exactly the same way or the same joke or whatever it is, in exactly the same way as someone else in a, in a presentation or in, in a stand-up comedy routine or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Well, I, I had a friend who did a stand-up comedy course and uh, she said to me, once I learned the rules, I could play the game. And, mm. and she said, you know, there's a, like everything has a formula and it's like, if you can use the formula, you can actually change the practice and it will, it will work. And so I went and did a stand-up comedy course for that very reason. Like I wanted to learn the rules and it's, the, and it's true. There's a structure for jokes. There's a key word that you use when it comes to stand-up comedy that is designed to get a laugh. And once you understand that, you can you can actually outwork that and 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 and, uh, and actually execute that. So let's put this into a, a, like a corporate context or a business context, which would typically the people um, who are listening to this podcast. Like, if we're going to create this learning culture within our organisations, so again, people are not necessarily taught to learn. We've talked about some of the things that we could do at an individual level to create uh, that uh, learning. Um, pattern but like what about in an organization how do we create cultures that have this kind of learning desire that's a million dollar question shane (laughs) if we can find it i think we're we're onto something for people right i would say some of these ingredients would be there within an organization setting right absolutely and i think that this is i mean it's so hard isn't it because especially in regulated industries which i'm sure a lot of your people listening to this may be in and uh, that's where I came out of as well was accounting and all those kinds of good things. There's so many rules and oh, you must do these hours and all this kind of thing, which, you know, is fine and you know, makes sense in many ways. Does it actually present, prevent the problems it's thinking it's going to? Probably not. But anyway, that, that's another conversation. But I think there's this idea of if we're just consistently and constantly forcing this mandatory learning toward two people, or we're obsessing still with the idea of measurement. And look, there's there's pros and cons of that kind of thing as well. But if we're obsessing about the those types of things, the the mandatory hours, the the measurement of of learning, etc. Are we really teaching people and creating an environment where people can go and curate their own learning and can go and be curious on how something happens or why something works, or even learn in different, learn adjacent skills that they may be able to bring back in different ways. And I think, again, in in organizations, those things, L&D teams just don't have often the capacity, sometimes the capability to, to, to create a learning environment where that is the case. And so much of that comes down to how are people being recognized, rewarded and all the rest in the organization? Because we're still rewarding and recognizing no failure and perfect sales rates and scores and all the rest, then of course we're not going to have a learning environment. There's, mm-hmm. you, you've got to have a bit of risk for a learning environment. I always find that the phrase mandatory kind of learning quite fascinating because I don't know that you can mandate that people learn. You can probably, it, it's more like mandatory attendance. Attendance. Yeah. <laughs> and so we go, well, okay, we've got mandatory attendance for this um, learning program, whatever that looks like, leadership, culture, communication, any of those ones that sit in there. Um, but 
really what we need to do is create environments where people learn, which are all the kind of elements we've talked about within this. Um, but one of the things I'm, I think I've seen that is so powerful is just the ability to ask questions of what we do and allow yeah. people to have that kind of curiosity that we were talking about. So if we look at the last 12 months, uh, work in, as we know it has kind of changed in so many different ways. And one of the things that happened in the middle of last year when everything felt really chaotic um, is I was talking to a team leader and, and I said, when was the last time you stopped in the middle of chaos rather than after it and ask, what are we learning right now? What are we noticing right now? Because it's kind of learning tends to be a reflective tool rather than an in the moment tool. Have you kind of seen that with teams and people that you've worked with? Yeah, I don't know if I could name anyone who's who's doing that really consistently other than, so I don't know if you've read the book An Everyone Culture by Keegan and Leahy. That is, the examples in there are phenomenal of le- like true learning organisations. And they, on the surface, when you read it, you're like, this actually sounds quite brutal in some ways. And it's never brutal from, you know, certainly not a bullying or anything like that, anything, you know, um, unpleasant. But they're just, there's just constant feedback loops. And I think that's the thing that's mostly missing in organisations which prevents the true learning culture is the lack of constant feedback loops. And exactly that, to your point, Shane, that idea of, we are stopping every single day and going, what are we learning? Are we on track? Shane, great job. You did that. You held that client conversation really well. You dealt with that really difficult thing. It's something you can maybe do differently next time. Steph, great job on that other thing. Think about this, you know, and doing that daily. And that might sound extreme or whatever, but that's what these organizations are doing. And they have got phenomenal business results to build, to back it up as well. And it is places like Bridgewater, who I know are often lauded for some of these other things. One of the other things just to add quickly is just one of your points there made me think of it is I think as well, we're, we're often operating to the lowest common denominator. And I use that kind of intentionally because mm. we're constantly like, oh, well, if we don't mandate things, people won't turn up. I'm, like, I'm sorry, those people shouldn't be here. If they, yeah. <laughs> they, I realize we might have few people left in some places, but if people aren't invested in their own development and getting better, I don't know. I just I feel like that's that's a bigger problem than them not turning up to the training. Yeah, it's fascinating. As, as, as you were kind of talking there, I was reflecting through these different layers of like, um, do we have a feedback culture and how open are we as, uh, as a team to receiving some of those feedback loops, which I think what sits below that is, do we have a listening culture? I was reading an article mm. or maybe I think it might've been the last edition of Harvard Business Review. And they were talking about um, like cultures that have a, have a listening uh, or organizations that have a listening culture. And they were like, it, it needs to happen at every layer within the organization. And we tend to overestimate our ability to, to listen. Then ultimately what sits below that is just the general culture of communication. And I, and I always Trust. have this expression that most of our biggest issues in an organization are a communication issue. And most of them can be resolved through more effective communication. This is, this is what we're talking about, right? At the core of it is like, do we listen? Do we receive feedback? Can we communicate openly and honestly? And if we can't, how could we possibly expect a culture of learning? Absolutely. And without... And without trust, none of that's going to happen. So even mm. below all of that is this simmering kind of idea of, of latent trust or whether there is trust there or an absence of trust and maybe a trust vacuum in some places as well. Because without any trust, of course, those things aren't going to happen. Of course, you're not going to give someone feedback because you're going to worry, be worried about what they're going to do back to you or whatever that happens to be. Or you're not going to take on the feedback because you're too worried about whether this is it and whether you're never going to get promoted or your days here are numbered or whatever it is. Mm. So I think all of that absolutely comes into it. And and even the idea of you when you read the In Everyone Culture book, they, they talk about just the the in, almost incessant 
detail and measurement. So it kind of goes against what I was just saying about measurement, but it's measuring the right things. Mm. And also the transparency of everyone's goals. So in one of the examples in the book, I think it was the movie theater one where it's been a little while since I read the book, but there's a movie theater one and everyone's development goals are up on a board in the the kind of staff room kind of thing. So just given the, the environment they're in, they're all up on the staff room, they're all on the wall and every day people are ticking off whether they've done something that day to, to build that, that develop or to move them towards that development goal. Interesting. Some public accountability around learning. Yeah. And it's, it's exactly, it's less about the accountability. Well, I think, yeah, there's an element of accountability there, but it's actually about, it's, this is for the common good. And this is actually, so we can all support each other in each other's development goals. Mm. I, I was speaking to a bunch of um, leaders a uh, number of years ago now, and I, I had the, the the cliche expression, which is leaders are readers. And, and I actually, I think definitely in one sense, um, people who are in leadership should commit to a practice of reading, not because mm-hmm. they want to read books, but I would say what sits below that. I think it's great leaders are great learners. Um, and, and that's just part of the process of leadership is how do I become a better learner? And so we've kind of talked about it at an organizational level. We've talked about it at, a, at an individual level. Um, you've used the expression a couple of times, which is that sense of itchy feet um, that, you know, I've, I've had this kind of itchy kind of this itch that I needed to scratch. So you kind of went and you started doing some design. Do you reckon that sense of itchiness, uh, whether it's like a scratch or that itchy feet sensation, is that desire to learn? Do you reckon that's a, an association with learning? I think so. And even a couple of years ago, I went through the Pilates teacher training qualification as well. So I'm actually technically a qualified Pilates instructor. <laughs> and part of that came from, oh, I reckon I could give that a go. I was going to a lot of Pilates. I'd been practicing Pilates for, for a few years and really enjoyed it and thought, oh, yeah, that's, that looks kind of fun. And more as a kind of side thing, not necessarily as something. And this is the other thing as well for people like, oh, right, so you're going to be a Pilates instructor now. There's sometimes this binary of you can't just do that as a bit of a thing you know, for four or five hours a week or whatever, or, you know, in the evenings, at the weekend or whatever. It has to be, oh, right, so that's going to be a thing. But... What I realized, certainly in post-COVID, because obviously all of that kind of stopped in terms of teaching classes and things, was, oh, I feel like that's kind of served its purpose. I did did the course, got the qualification, taught you know, taught for a, probably nine months or so, a few times a week, and then kind of thought, oh, I feel like that's, that's done it. So I think there's this idea as well. Now, it's not wasted. It's, it's, it's a great thing from a facilitation perspective. You know, it's a different way of teaching, facilitating or training or whatever. And so I had the itchy feet, went through the thing, did the thing. Now you don't have to necessarily train as an instructor in something and do that. You could do this many other ways of doing that. But just kind of trying it on for size and testing stuff and putting on these different sometimes identities or hats and, you know, living living in a different way for a little bit and then putting that on the shelf and going, oh, I might come back to that when I'm, maybe when I'm 80 or 90 because well, I'm planning to work all the way through <laughs> my life. Maybe that'll be the thing I do when I'm, you know, in my, in my 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think that what you just said there resonated with so, with me so much because most people think learning is to produce an outcome. And, you know, I've loved Gallup used this expression for learners when they talk about the learning theme is they talk about their um, their tombstone, tombstone is their diploma, which is that sense of like, when, when I die, then I'm finished learning. But up mm. until then, everything else is just part of my, my course. And um, I remember I went and saw a counselor back in, in 2013, my first experience in counseling. And it was the mm. most horrible experience um, going to the counselor. And I walked out of the room and I thought to myself, I would just love to learn what, how to become a counselor. And I reckon I could do it better <laughs> just based on my one experience. Yeah. So I went out and in the car, the parking lot of the counseling um, 
uh, clinic, I called Monash University and I enrolled in my master's in counseling and finished that at uni. And it was just that desire to kind of scratch that itch that I didn't feel like it was satisfied. Now, I've since found a, a, an incredible psychologist as a result of, of that. But I, that for me, people go, oh, did you want to be a counselor? And I was like, well, no, I didn't want to be a counselor. I just wanted, I was so curious to learn what goes into that practice and, and what makes that up. And so the whole process of learning is this, this continual journey of curiosity. And, and one of my, my favorite books is, is um, The Medici Effect by Franz Johansson. And he talks about our, our greatest creativity comes at the intersection of disciplines. And so one of the things I've learned as being a learner, you get these intersections of all these creative outlets that you have, and they combine to produce this incredible creativity. So coming back to what you said before, that itch that you want to scratch, that sense of itchy feet, like don't ignore it, right? Because it could be potentially leading you down a path that may not necessarily be the outcome that you're looking for, but could create this intersection of creativity that could be really powerful for learning. Absolutely. And I just think there's coming back to the point earlier, nothing's wasted. Yeah. Like, yes, you might spend some money or spend some time on some learning, whatever that happens to look like, whether that's more formal, going to a classroom or signing up for a course or watching some stuff on YouTube or reading some books or, you know, there's obviously a whole spectrum of things you can do. But just exactly that, thinking about what's the intersection, how does this relate? And in one of my favorite books, which is Range by David Epstein, he talks about how actually a lot of that innovation, exactly as you just said, comes from those intersections and really the ability to think in metaphor and to think in in an analogy as well. Like, oh, this thing is like that thing. So this leadership problem I've got, this team problem I've got, is actually like when I bake a cake and something doesn't quite, it doesn't rise. So what's the element of this that's not working yet? So it's then kind of finding out, right, where can I find these analogies? And the more things we're exposed to in that way, the better. And even the fact that I remember when I said goodbye to my my accounting membership for ACCA, which I was part of, a couple of my friends who I had studied with and we'd gone through the, the EY kind of training program together, I'd said about, or it just came up in conversation that I wasn't a member anymore. And they're like, but, you know, you, you worked for three years doing that. Like you had, what, what, why are you not a member anymore? What, why do you want the qualification anymore? I'm like, well, I'm still a qualified accountant. I still did the thing. I'm still a qualified yeah. accountant. And also, there's, you know, I said this to them, I said, something's gone very wrong in my life if I need that. <laughs> so, mm. Because I had moved away from that and very intentionally from that career path. So I've still got the thing. I've still got so many of the skills that, it taught me both the, you know, the technical skills, which is very useful from re when running your own business, and also some of the curiosity that I built up then, because the thing I really liked about audit, whilst I didn't really like auditing, the thing I really liked was going out to different clients, finding out what was really going on, like getting behind the scenes, finding out the gossip, finding out the different departments, what was working within them, and whether there was things not working between the departments and stuff like that. And then just the, the excuse to be professionally nosy, <laughs> professionally nosy I love that um I feel like this conversation I want to just keep going all day and I'm mindful that we're going to bring this conversation into close um mm -hmm. I'd love to know like as like we've talked about so many concepts in here but really just I'm I feel like I'm in my zone because I'm talking to a fellow learner and there's so many things that I go okay if we could just impart more of this into the conversation um for people to just have this sense of curiosity that um, openness to kind of learn and scratch those itches, even if they aren't producing a particular outcome, create cultures that are committed to learning. Um, what, uh, what have you been thinking about as you kind of reflect on this conversation? What's your big take out of, out of this, um, out of this conversation? 
it's really been a reminder of that idea of curation. It's not something I've thought about for a little while. And it's one of those, sometimes those skills you have, but you don't realize you have. So you need to sometimes bring it to the surface again. And then for me, it's been a reminder of going, oh yeah, okay. There's a couple of things I'm focusing on or learning at the moment. How could I curate differently? You know, I've kind of got one direction over here that I'm I'm using to learn or to practice and, and build some skills with some context. Mm. How else could I curate some different learning around that? Or who could help me do that? Where can I actually build some connections to help me with the curation? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about like for people who are listening to this, like what's the one thing that you've been putting off because you think it's irrelevant? Like what's that mm. thing that you've been like itching to learn or know about that you go, that's totally unrelated to my job. That's totally unrelated to my work. And yet there might be something that sits in that learning that translates directly into what you're doing on a day-to-day basis at that kind of intersectional level. Yeah. Oh, and just at a life level, like go and have yeah. some fun, learn something <laughs> new. And you never know. And the other thing is, well, you just never know who you're going to meet doing these things. Like going and doing some different learning in a completely different field, will expose you to different people, different ideas. And who knows, you might find your next best friend in doing something like that. <laughs> That's really true. Now, how can we possibly close off a podcast with you and not get some kind of a book recommendation? Oh, now, yeah, people okay. should definitely right. go to your podcast because you and, and follow you on Instagram and a whole bunch of other channels because you're always putting out like um, your your honest thoughts and some of your summaries of some of these books. But what's, what's one? It doesn't have to be your all-time favorite. Just what's one that a person could go away and go, this is going to be a good investment of my time? The one I come back to time and time again is Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering. And for me, it's it's beyond the idea of business, but there's so many different ways you can apply the ideas to your life. And I think there's, there's for me, it was one that just really made me rethink how I'm connecting and gathering with people intentionally. Now, I read that when it came out, which I think was end of 2018 from, from memory. So before we even thought of a pandemic coming so it's one that is really good to probably read or reread now in the space where we are where we are really rethinking and intentionally connecting and reconnecting with people as well and just thinking how do we really want to do that I love it. I love it. Um, how could people connect with you? I know I'm, I'm, put the, I'm going to put your details to your podcast, uh, to your Instagram, to LinkedIn, all the kind of ways that a person could connect with you. But if they wanted to kind of reach out and say, hey, love kind of your, like everything you talk about, would love to kind of get you for our team or, you know, a whole range of ways. What's the best way for people to connect with you? Yep. LinkedIn is probably the best way. So if the link goes in the show notes to this, that'd be awesome. LinkedIn's probably best. And then that's got my email address and everything as well. But I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So be checking my messages and things, but be great just to connect with you. Yeah, we we'll definitely re- encourage people to reach out and connect with you um, just to follow your work, but also, of course, um, yeah, everything that you're doing is fantastic. So I just want to say thanks for being part of the show. Really appreciated your time. Not at all. Thanks, Shane. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.